Hello, this is Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is our update episode as well as a conclusion on the episodes we've been doing on conspiracy and corruption. So I wasn't able to fit in a few kind of random stories that I wasn't sure where to put them in that didn't really fit. And then there was something that I'll include at the very end of this that was a little too graphic to put on a normal episode. So I'll give you fair warning before I get to that and play that clip as well. So first, I want to mention where we are in season one. As a reminder, season one is chronological. The goal would be to listen to it in its entirety from the first episode to the last. I know that not everyone will do this, but that is the goal because all the ideas and themes, they build on each other and each episode builds on ones prior to it, even if not directly. They will through the concepts and through the ideas and the timeline in general. So that's the goal. And in that series, we've done the origins of the systems of our society. We've done their more modern histories. We've done the current state of things. And we have just finished the section on corruption and conspiracy in these areas. The next section we are going to cover will be on agorism. Now let me read you a brief definition of agorism. Agorism is a libertarian social philosophy that advocates creating a society in which all relations between people are voluntary exchanges by means of counter-economics, thus engaging with aspects of peaceful revolution. So basically the idea is, now that we have seen all of the corruption that goes on in our current systems, The question is, what do you do about it? Because we live in these systems and there's not much we can do about it. We can't really change the system ourselves. We can't necessarily just pick up all of our things and our families and move to some other country. And the obvious question would be, is there any other country that doesn't have similar problems to this? And the answer is probably no. So what do we do? Well, the answer is... Agorism. And that's basically how do you operate outside of the system and keep from supporting the system? And what can you do about it? So we'll do an episode on activism, but this will be activism that does not involve political involvement at all. We'll do an episode on markets and how do you buy and sell things in a way that doesn't contribute through taxes that doesn't add to the consumerist culture that we live in? And how do we avoid having to live under the thumb of these systems we have just called out as being corrupt? The next episode will be on the education side of things. What types of things should we educate ourselves on? What types of education are missing in relation to agorism? And how do we do that by ourselves, outside of the system? What are our options here? We'll talk about things like health and kids and self-education in general, and we'll talk about that stuff. Then we'll do another update, and I'll tell you where we're going from there. We'll basically talk about some self-sufficiency. We'll do a case study on some specific people that are involved in this kind of stuff and move on from there to our next section. So that's where we're going, and that's where we've been. Now, I would like to make a few comments about corruption and conspiracy that, like I said, did not get fit into the episodes we have done. There's basically so much that it wasn't really possible to include everything, and even including these random things that I really felt like getting out there. 
it, I'm still missing so much stuff. Even every single thing that I did mention and I did cover, there's so much more detail involved in that that we didn't have time to cover. The episodes were already about two hours long apiece, and that's very long, especially in relation to the upper other episodes of this podcast, which are more like an hour long or so. And so there's only so much reasonably we can get to. Maybe in season two, we'll do some deep dives into some specific events and stories and concepts. But for season one, this gives a broad view of corruption and conspiracy in these systems. So in the first episode, we did discuss wars and we discussed the CIA. And one story that stuck out in my mind that I realized I didn't mention were the wars in Somalia and Libya that we were involved in and basically the mess we made out of those and all the problems that came up out of that and the fact that really that didn't get much of any media coverage. Uh, A lot of Americans don't even realize that we were at war in Libya recently. And so that's an issue. The funding of terrorists and specifically Al-Qaeda, who is an enemy of the United States since 9-11, officially but also officially we support them and arm them and fund them to fight the regimes that we disagree with in the Middle East. So yeah, that's a little corrupt. And the other aspect is the Golden Crescent. So if you've heard of the Golden Triangle and the Golden Crescent, the Golden Triangle is in Asia, and that's one of the main places that opium came out of, and that supply shifted to the Golden Crescent, which is now the biggest area that opium comes out of that's in the Middle East, and it includes Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan. Well, in these areas specifically, there are many hilly regions that are not as easily accessible, and the way the communities there operate is that they were fairly segregated and fairly decentralized. There were different independent tribes and groups of people, but they all followed kind of roughly the same lifestyle. And what that would include would be that the men would grow subsistence crops. They would grow food for the people of the village and the tribe. And the women and children would grow the poppy for the opium and process that and get that ready to distribute. And that's how they would make their extra money for anything else that they needed. And that was the system that operated there. Like I said, these different tribes and groups were fairly isolated. They didn't necessarily have like airplanes or helicopters where they could go from one mountainous region to another. It was mountainous, and so it was difficult to travel, that kind of stuff. And so they were fairly independent. But still, these regions are where most of the opium came out of at that time period and coming into this time period as well. Now, what ended up happening in relation to us uh, would be the CIA. And they came in, and they needed people to, again, fight in some wars against people they didn't agree with in the Middle East, and they needed fighters, because we weren't going to send American troops over there, and we didn't officially want to be involved. So what happened was they convinced a lot of these tribes to have their men fight against regional dictators and warlords and other such leaders that we wanted to depose and get rid of and replace. And so we got the men to do this. But like I explained with how their system worked, the men were the ones that grew the food. So this wouldn't really work because then the village would starve and you would basically have to have the women and children start doing food, but growing food and 
processing that is a much more difficult task and more intensive. And so that's why the men were doing it. And also, if the women and children started doing that, then who would process the opium and get them their extra money that they need for other things? So what happened was the CIA offered to give them food, things like corn and wheat and things of that nature, to basically survive on to eat. And they would provide them the food as long as the tribes would provide the fighting men to fight in these regional wars and battles and overthrows that were going on. And that way, the women and children could still produce the opium. Now, not only that, but the CIA also was willing to put in some infrastructure. They put in some landing strips in many areas in these mountainous regions so that they would be able to increase their connections and communications and trade, things like that. And obviously, what came out of that was that they were able to distribute their opium much more efficiently and become much more organized because they were much less isolated. And so that was something that the CIA was involved in there, where they weren't directly involved with running drugs. They weren't personally sending agents in there to pick up the opium and then flying it back to America and selling it on the streets. Now, there have been times where the CIA has been found to do similar things like this, but this was not one of them. Uh, but this is how they set it up, and you can see how they work, where a lot of times it's not directly but it is very corrupt and conspiratorial, and that's what they do. That's how they operate. But that's just another good example that I hadn't mentioned in the first episode on corruption and conspiracy. The next one, when we got into finance, I wanted to mention Yemen because that's one of the worst hit areas today as of this recording, and it's going through a lot of trouble. There are a lot of issues there, and the financial community in general, the international financial community, had a lot to do with that. So where this began, in one aspect at least, now there are many aspects involved with how the war in Yemen happened and how it went down and how it is still going on and what all those repercussions are. But one of the first issues here was that the IMF came in to give a loan to Yemen. Now, at first, Yemen didn't want to accept a loan from the IMF, but then they basically decided they needed it, they didn't have much of a choice, and so they took it. But with this loan came some strings attached. One of those strings was that Yemen would have to switch from growing subsistence crops to growing cash crops. And so the idea there was you no longer have to just grow the food that you are going to consume yourself, because now you can grow these cash crops, now you have access to the open market, and you can sell these cash crops on the open market and then use that money to buy anything else you want. And so you're going to have access to all this food and resources that you never had access to before, and this is all because you were going to start growing cash crops. And this was one of the, like I said, strings attached to the loan. They had to do this. There wasn't a choice here. And so Yemen did. And at first it went well, and this was a good thing. It worked out well. Their economy started to improve. However, then around the time of the Arab Spring, there became conflict in the area, in the country in Yemen, and different groups started fighting against one another. A lot of it had to do with religious sects, and they didn't agree with each other. There's a new person that came to power, and then some people didn't like him and rose up against him, and then others were fighting against those. And Basically, you had chaos that started to ensue in this massive war that started to break out. And the other aspect here is that Iran, 
of course, backed the people that were of the same religious sect that the majority in, in Iran were a part of. And then Saudi Arabia basically did the same. And so then you had forces and weapons and money from Iran coming in and the same from Saudi Arabia coming in. And they were fighting against each other. And this kind of blew it up into an even bigger conflict. And where the U.S. is involved is that Saudi Arabia obviously is our ally. And so most of the weapons they were using were U.S. weapons. So one of the issues here is that with all this conflict, Yemen got cut off from the international markets. And there were sanctions put on different groups in different areas and some were completely shut off by military forces of different groups as well. And so through this, they weren't able to get their cash crops to market and therefore weren't able to get other crops and resources from international markets so that they could use them and eat them. They basically started running out of food. And so since Yemen had switched over to cash crops from subsistence crops and they no longer were growing the cash crops that grew well in the region and that's how they had been set up to operate for years and years and decades, well, no longer was that the case. Now they're growing these cash crops, but now these cash crops were worthless and they didn't have the ability to switch immediately over to subsistence crops because that takes time, and that takes planting, that takes harvest, that takes processing, that takes all of these things, even distribution's really hard when you have a massive war going on throughout your country. And so, what basically started to happen was that there was then mass starvation, because they didn't have the food that they needed, and they weren't able to produce it themselves, and they weren't able to access markets, and so basically they became screwed, and they were at the mercy of people like Iran and Saudi Arabia and the international forces at play, including the U.S. and United Nations and everybody that got involved in their own special ways. But the point is that Yemen was basically set up to be a puppet that could be controlled because they were reliant on international markets. They were reliant on others to make sure that they could take care of themselves and support themselves as a country. Now, I am not saying that the IMF started the war in Yemen. That's not the way it played out. But the loan and the stipulations and the way they changed the economy there had a lot to do with the fact that now they are facing mass starvation and dealing with one of the worst crises that have happened in all of modern history. Now, you could maybe say that there were some influences in sparking wars and backing certain groups and making sure that they were able to fight one another and things like this, that maybe there were some international bankers and groups that had to do with this, and you could look back at something like World War One, where especially many revisionist historians point out the fact that the Ottoman Empire, which is now the Middle East, was carved up into roughly what we know it as today by basically the main powers around the world at the time, before the time of the war, and there was already plans for a Jewish state ahead of that, so the state of Israel, and this was right when oil became a very useful resource. We realized that it was extremely useful, it was going to be very important, and we realized that the Middle East had a large, large portion of 
the world's oil. There were huge reserves there. And so the powers that be needed to get control of this, and that was very important. And so many believe, I'm not saying this as a fact, I'm just stating a view that many people have, especially revisionist historians, but the view is that these world powers used a war in order to carve up this territory and distribute it amongst themselves so that they could have control. And then they instituted the specific people they wanted to be in charge of these different new regions and countries and things of that nature, and ended up creating the basically the huge mess that we have now that is the Middle East out of a fairly stable and peaceful Ottoman Empire that existed beforehand. So you can look at that as an example to say, hey, these international groups and power players and nations came in, caused a lot of disruption, benefited greatly from it. Now, how much they were directly involved in starting the war, who knows, was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand something that came up independently and spontaneously by the Serbs or Was that also funded and pushed along by an outside group in order to spark a conflict, knowing that through a chain of the allies of these countries, you would end up with a specific group of countries that would be allied together against basically all of the Western world powers, and that would end up with results that would be beneficial to most of the Western world powers yeah, again, it you can go way down the rabbit hole. I'm not going to go there. I just wanted to introduce the concept that wars, and especially large-scale wars, have a lot of factors involved. They are not simple. It's not just one event that sparks a war, and there's one cause and one reason, and that's it. One country involved? No. Not even two countries involved. There are usually so many different factors, and historically... Many of those factors do have a lot to do with corruption and conspiracy. Now, I'm not saying that every one of the factors in every one of the wars is conspiratorial or corrupt, but I am saying that there is a large portion of the events that have sparked wars and fed conflicts, especially in modern times, that have been conspiratorial and corrupt. And even when you go back to ancient history, this is a similar pattern, just typically on a much smaller scale. So that's an issue there. And now I'll move on to the next section, and that would be more of a culture issue. So between World War One and the feminist movement, you ended up with a huge culture change in America. And the biggest aspect of this was that women began to enter the workforce, and that became a very popular and common thing and the new norm. But what this actually did, aside from the obvious, so let me go ahead and give the caveat here that I know the normal story that women were often looked at as less valuable or less intelligent or less capable than men. There were many sexist issues that were going on in the country, and there was a lot of good that came out of the feminist movement, and there is nothing wrong with a woman entering the workforce. So let me get that out of the way. But like usual in this podcast, I am focusing on the other side of things that usually are not discussed as much or talked about as much or taught as much. And so the that aspect in regards to this culture change is that when you look at the results of the changes in society in America, 
we can see basically who benefits and what is really going on structurally. And the results of having most of the women enter the workforce is that now you have double the tax revenue. And so instead of just the men being taxed and the government collecting that, now you had both parents being taxed. And you also had a better excuse for being taxed because now almost all of the children were being educated and raised by the state as well. Because if both parents are in the workplace, then who's going to take care of the kids? Well, usually that's going to be the government. Now, how is the government going to do that? That is all funded through tax money, and people are probably much more willing to pay a little tax increase if it's for the good of their children and for their education and that kind of stuff. So it is also interesting that over that shift and over that time period up till now, we have had between tax raises and inflation roughly a halving of the value of the dollar as we have had roughly a doubling of those who are being taxed. And so the relationship there is fairly connected and you can draw whatever conclusions you want from that. And many have. Many say that what happened is that the women were brought into the workforce intentionally to get both parents in there so that the government could collect more money. And then they were able to basically double taxes and families could still survive. They would just need to survive on two incomes instead of one. And the government would get more money. They would also get more control of the society as a whole because they could control the education of the children. They controlled the curriculum. They controlled the regulations. They controlled who was teaching them. They had the biggest influence on children because they were the ones that were in control of the majority of a child's time. When a parent is working, then they come home. There are only a few hours in the evenings, realistically, that they spend with their kids. And the majority of the kids' education and discipline and things like that would happen in the school. And so if you look at it from a broad view, you can see how the state really wins out in this scenario and how corporations also win out in this scenario where they end up with a much larger workforce and there is a much larger state in general and pot of money out of taxes that corporations can lobby and get involved with in order to use for their own sectors or their own specific companies. And that's the way it works. That's the definition of crony capitalism, where you have corporations that are using the state through regulations or through tax dollars or tax breaks or whatever the case may be, government contracts. And through this, they're able to keep out their own competition and increase their own business and make more money and more profits. And they can only do this if there is a large state with a large amount of money behind it. And through this culture change of bringing the majority of the adults in America into the workforce and that not shifting back after the war when most of the men came back, because when they left, that was pretty much necessary. A lot of women had to come in because there were jobs that needed to be filled. And there were some issues there. And that pretty much always happens in countries when it's a time of war. There are major shifts that have to take place in society just out of necessity. But often what happens is that these shifts do not revert back to the way they were before the war, after the war. After the war, you see a very slight backtrack of these wartime changes 
but most of them end up staying and then society moves on. And we have given many examples of many influential individuals that point this out as a good thing, as a way to evolve society and steer society and social engineering and that kind of stuff. War and crisis and trials are, by many people's definition at least, one of the best ways to achieve these goals. And we see that that has happened over time. So this culture change with World War One and the feminist movement and bringing women into the workforce and now needing two incomes to support a family instead of just one, at least in general, this is another aspect of what some would consider corruption and conspiracy, especially when you look at how we got into World War One and Woodrow Wilson, our favorite president, and all of his issues. And when you look at the feminist movement, there have been some questionable things that have taken place there and some questionable people that have led the charge in some areas that movement, like many other movements throughout history, if you look at civil rights and pretty much any giant social movement, you do see that there are attempts to steer it in certain directions and highlight certain specific issues and push certain agendas and this kind of thing. Again, I'm not getting into all the social movements of our modern history, but if you want to look into that, there are definitely plenty of examples of corruption and conspiracy. So moving on, I wanted to sum up everything before I get to the more not safe for work content. Um, I'm going to go ahead and sum up this update episode and conclusion episode with a quote from Edward Bernays. And this was his book and basically the ultimate volume on propaganda. The book is entitled Propaganda. And the quote goes like this. He wrote, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in a democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas are suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society." In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. And that wraps up the quote there. I think that is a good summary of our corruption and conspiracy episodes here. It basically covers everything and uh, mentions a few phrases that we have heard in other quotes from world leaders, such as an invisible government and steering societies and social patterns of the masses and issues with democracy and manipulation of the mechanism of society. All of these things are exactly what we've been talking about. And yeah, that sums it up well. So, if that's all you want to hear, then go ahead and close out now, because I am going to get into something that is not as wholesome, and this is the information that I did not want to include in a normal episode. I'm giving fair warning here if there are any children around, or if you are sensitive to graphic information or stories or details, please do not listen. I will read some writings and 
things that I've come across in relation to the Bohemian Grove. And for some background information, the Bohemian Grove is a group that meets every year. It's a place in California where basically all of the elite come there and they meet up and they hobnob and do their things and talk about plans. There have been many people that have bragged about many important things that have gone on at Bohemian Grove and have been decided on. You have presidential candidates that decide to run or decide not to run at Bohemian Grove after talking or presenting there. You've got the fact that the Manhattan Project was claimed at least to have started at the Bohemian Grove through conversations there. And basically, it's a very important place with very important people, and there is a lot involved there. So I'll start off by mentioning a few of the people that have been a part of the Bohemian Grove Society, and then I'm going to read some of these clips from articles that I have found about some of the things that have gone on there. I'm specifically focusing on a lot of homosexual prostitution that has occurred, so that can give you an idea of where we're going here. And then at the end, I'm going to play a clip of an interview, and that is the one that is very graphic that, depending on who you are, you may not want to listen to. So let's start off with who has been a part and who has been to Bohemian Grove that we definitely have a record of. The list should be full of names that you should recognize. We have people like... Henry Kissinger and Thomas Watson of IBM, Philip Howley of Bank of America, William Casey from the CIA, Ralph Bailey of DuPont, George Bush, shouldn't have to mention, A.W. Clausen from the World Bank, Walter Cronkite, and William Buckley. We also have names such as Clint Eastwood, Newt Gingrich, Herbert Hoover, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Theodore Roosevelt, Dick Cheney, John Lehman, the banker and member of the 9-11 Commission, Alan Greenspan, Alexander Haig, Jack Kemp, Colin Powell, John Major, Bill Clinton, and Tennessee Ernie Ford. So you can see that there are many presidents and people involved with banking and large international corporations and the intelligence community and the media. And basically, anytime we look at these large groups of powerful people meeting up, those are the groups that are generally represented. And as we have gone through our episodes on corruption and conspiracy, we have found many connections there. So let me go ahead and just read some of these clips from articles that I've found. And I will begin with this one. In 2004, we highlighted a New York Post article which discussed the attendance of gay porn star Chad Savage at Bohemian Grove. According to the Post, he was there to, quote, attend to every need of the so-called Christian conservative majority that make up the attendee list. In October 1999, hundreds of hours of Oval Office taped conversations from the Nixon era were declassified. Richard Nixon was quoted as saying, the upper class in San Francisco is that way. The Bohemian Grove, which I attend from time to time, is the most faggy, damned thing you could ever imagine. A reporter who worked at the camp during the summer of 2004 and 2005 told us that he was regularly propositioned by men seeking homosexual intercourse. 
Leola McConnell, a former liberal Democratic candidate for governor of Nevada and one-time prostitute for hire, was met with deafening silence on behalf of the majority of the corporate media last year when she sensationally alleged that Bush and Ash regularly hired bisexual men for secret sex sessions in the 80s when Bush was a private citizen. Quote, In 1984, I watched George W. Bush enthusiastically and expertly perform a homosexual act on another man, one Victor Ash, said McConnell. Ash is the current U.S. ambassador to Poland, and he too should come out, like former New Jersey Governor James McGreevy, and admit to being a gay American. Other homoerotic acts were also performed by then-private citizen George W. Bush, I know this because I performed one of them on him myself. And for the next section, on June 29th, 1989, the Washington Times' Paul M. Rodriguez and George Archibald reported on a Washington, D.C. prostitution ring that had intimate connections with the White House, allegedly all the way up to the President George H.W. Bush. According to the story, male prostitutes had been given access to the White House, and the article also cited evidence of, quote, abduction and use of minors for sexual perversion. Now, this was out of an article entitled, Gay Porn Star Services Bohemian Grove Members, by the New York Post, July 22, 2004. However, as I have tried to find this article, I have not been able to. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but it's basically been wiped clean of the internet, so it would be probably on some torrent site or something like that. I'm sure someone has a copy of it, but it is not easily accessible on the internet, so that was also interesting. According to the New York Post website, the article does not exist, but it did at one time, so very interesting. Now, all of this is a preload to the interview I am about to play a section of, and This basically lets you know what allegedly goes on at the Bohemian Grove and with many of the very famous members that attend there and very important officials. So now, after you have heard this about many different sources all citing very similar stuff, that there is a lot of male prostitution that goes on there and a lot of things that go on related to that at the Bohemian Grove and with these officials and other examples. Now, I am highlighting specifically a certain aspect of what occurs at the Bohemian Grove and certain evil things, but there is much more that goes on there. If you look at articles that have been written from major publications, usually they kind of write it off as being this boys club retreat, a throwback to boyhood summer camp where all these rich and powerful men get away from their daily stresses and they drink a lot and they're pretty much drunk all day every day at the Grove and they can just talk about things openly and just basically get away from life and get away from things. And that's usually how it's uh, presented. There is one specific aspect that is a little disturbing in addition to the things I'm discussing, and that would be the cremation of care ceremony where there are men that are dressed up in hoods and robes and they perform a ceremony on a stage in front of the whole assembly of people at Bohemian Grove. And the ritual involves taking a 
fake body, an effigy of a dead person, and bringing it in an open coffin up to an altar at the feet of a giant owl statue and burning it and setting it adrift on a raft in the river. And this is a basically a mock sacrifice. And the way it is usually written off is that it's just symbolism to show that the men are burning away their cares of their normal everyday lives. And that's all that's going on here. It's just for fun. However, just the fact that they're doing mock sacrifices there's even like screaming that goes on where different people play different roles and one plays the role of the sacrificial person and there's like large blood curdling screams at one point and one person that infiltrated the grove and there have been a few people that have gotten in and gotten some video and some audio and some reports and one of them recalled during this ceremony the year that they were there that George Bush, along with two other people, and I can't remember their names. Um, I'm just saying that off off the top of my head. I'm not going to go back and look it all up. But George Bush was one of them, and there are two others, and they were doing basically a simulation of the old Budweiser commercials where you had the three frogs sitting in a row, and they would say, Budweiser. And these three famous politicians were playing their minor roles in this mock sacrifice ritual and they were saying cremation cremation and each one was saying the different part of the word cremate and then shun and yeah just sounds a little creepy to me and just the fact that they're doing mock sacrifices and yeah it's It's a little sketchy, just to say the least. And then you have the issues of all these very powerful men meeting together and discussing things in a very secretive way, in a very secretive meeting. You're not allowed to talk about it outside of the Bohemian Grove itself. And you have all these reports of the male prostitutes that are coming in and even child prostitution and all this stuff. So as I get into the interview here, for some context, what was being discussed prior to the clip I'm going to play was a prostitution ring that was ran by a man named Larry King, and it was busted at one point. He ran a bank. He was a banker, and he was fairly popular and famous. He gave some speeches at some Republican party conventions and things like that. And he was busted with this giant ring that apparently uh, serviced many different officials and politicians, as well as other rich and powerful people. And this was heavily involved in human trafficking and in pedophilia and things like this. There were many people that actually went to jail over this scandal, and it was a really big deal at the time. And so that's what was being referenced by DeCamp earlier to the section that I'm jumping in on, but I'm trying to mainly condense it down where it's mainly the section on the Bohemian Grove and specifically the diary of the young boy who was taken there. Now, with everything I've said prior to this, and even the past few episodes, and including this interview that's upcoming. This is all information that I have found, and I have done a lot of research on this. I've tried to do more research than I normally would and make sure that I can back up everything that I've presented, that there are multiple sources, that I try to go back to primary sources and things that have been confirmed, oftentimes confirmed by 
the government itself through government investigations and declassified material and things like that, or where you have firsthand accounts and firsthand footage and firsthand audio. That's what I try to do. But the reality is I can't personally prove every single thing I've given you. And it is up to you to decide what you think is real, what you think is not. And if there is something that you question, I encourage you to actually look it up. Don't just discount things because they sound crazy. That is actually how many conspiracies have gone basically unchecked is because it's just sounds so ridiculous that no one's going to believe it. And then if no one believes it, then it never really gets investigated or looked into. There's no protests. There's no nothing. Anybody that talks about it is just a crazy conspiracy theorist. And that's it. So I would just encourage you to look it up for yourself, do some research on your own. All I'm doing is presenting information here. Again, I'm trying to present well-researched information and I'm trying to educate myself to the best of my ability in these areas to make sure that what I present is accurate, but I cannot guarantee 100% that every single thing I'm saying here is 100% accurate, but I can tell you that it is very well-researched, it's well-documented, it is all backed up by multiple sources, not just one, and I can give you more information if you have any further questions or issues that you're not sure about, email me and I will send you all of my research information and different things that I've come across that just have not made it onto the episodes. These episodes have been very long. These have been the longest episodes I've done so far. And it's because of all the content. I've tried to condense it as much as possible, research it as much as possible. But bottom line, it comes down to you and take it for what it is and you can go from there. It's all up to you. I'm just presenting it to you. So let's move on to the interview. Let me play the interview here. And this is the one that is fairly graphic. So very graphic, I should say. So if you might not enjoy that, then please just end the episode here. Thank you for listening. It was wonderful to have you. And please join us next time for our next episode. For those who want to remain. The interview is with a man named John DeCamp, and he joined the United States Army during the Vietnam War. He attained the rank of captain in the infantry. He was decorated for his service in Vietnam, and he was elected and served four terms as Nebraska State Senator. He was also the aide to former CIA director William Colby. So this man has many credentials. He is someone who has been a public official in the U.S. government, and so should be a fairly reliable source. And he is going to talk about a man that he interviewed and represented as a lawyer. In He was in jail at the time that he met the man and started to represent him, but the man had been involved in a prostitution ring, and he reports many of the things that happened there. The main thing is that he has a diary that he had kept and he reads some sections from that that, yeah, talk about some very evil things that happened. So let me just go ahead and play that and I will just play a section here, a fairly long section, but one that describes all of these things. Yeah, that was the strange thing about this kid. I wish I had been able to do that throughout life. But anyway, apparently he was a little boy. He was about 18 at the time I met him in jail there, 17, 18. As a young kid, his uncle or grandfather or somebody had taught him religiously to keep a, a diary, you know, where you marked things down every day. Well, he did it, and he did her in detail. And so when 
when I went and visited with him and he told me these strange tales, and then you had the head of psychiatry from one of the major medical institutions in the state, Creighton University, say, hey, this kid, uh, he ain't crazy. Uh, he's a multiple personality, and uh, he's probably telling the truth because multiples don't need a lie. They just switch personalities. Anyway, so to make a long, long, bizarre story short, uh, I found out that he was in jail because he had been one of those... Uh, intimately involved in all this, and he had to be shut up real quick. I'm making that as a conclusion. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that. but, but uh, And so they locked him up, charged him with uh, touching another boy on the outside of his pants, a cousin or something. And Anyway, so they, they, uh, they have him there, and I finally agreed I would represent him. And that led to a long, long tale that it got me deeply involved in researching, investigating the whole collapse of that credit union and the personalities involved. And ultimately, uh, on the advice of, of my best friend, closest friend, uh, godfather, whatever, eventually writing a, a, a book because he told me that's what I should probably do to protect myself. And uh, that man was a man named Bill Colby. And about the time that uh, I started writing the next book, Bill, as you know, was head of the CIA and ended up floating dead uh, in a pond somewhere. But I won't get into that right now. But anyway... Uh, so I wrote the book, and as I got at the very beginning of this story and working on it, one of the things that I did do was, uh, as I say, as you say, obtain the diaries of this young boy to uh, to uh, see just what he did say, and then I had them checked. And the forensics were because somebody said, well, he could have made this all up later, you know. He could have made this up later. And uh, so I wanted to make sure that wasn't... Done, and so we had forensics examined. They said, well, this ink was done at a certain time. This could only have been done, and on and on and on. Anyway, get to the heart of the discussion. Well, one more point, uh, uh, Senator uh, John Camp, because, you know, I've actually seen the Discovery Channel documentary that never aired, and we actually played it here locally in Austin. Oh, uh, good. I was sent a copy of it. The, the, they found hundreds of videotapes in King's office. The police saw it, freaked out, and hit it, have never released it. There were all these other children. People actually got convicted of this stuff. I want to make people understand. This is what he said. This all happened. Yeah, this, this isn't a fantasy. I ended up winning a million dollars on behalf of, uh, against awful, awful, awful overwhelming odds, including the Omaha World Herald newspaper that that attacked me so viciously because one of the key individuals that I got locked up in prison was their editor, one of their editors, uh, and uh, another individual. But anyway... Well, let's, yeah, I mean, yeah, people are going to prison for this, and, and let's add another Larry caveat. just got released from prison here about, what, eight, ten months ago. And, 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 well, hold on. And you were actually, you know, just out of the Senate, you were hired to go whitewash the operation because, you know, this is That's ridiculous. That's what I was hired for. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I did the opposite. Anyway, so... Uh, yeah, I won the million-dollar judgment in federal court finally, and it wasn't easy. And I'll, I want to talk about that a little because some of the stuff coming out about pedophilia in the church now or things written in my book way back then. Uh, but anyway, to get to the heart, of the heart of the matter that you called about, as I understand it, I took simply the diaries, Paul Bonacci, and I printed a good portion of them in my book. And one of them, one of the areas, described a trip in, I think it was 1984. I could even read part of it here. In, in fact in which he was taken to an area around Sacramento and then where they had the great big tall trees and then they went in where there's some owl, uh, big huge carved owl or something. And, or, or, anyway, so uh, so there, there uh, was where he claims. And I wasn't there, so I don't know. In fact, 
close as I've been to Bohemian Grove, he took me out and showed me where it was, and indeed there is a place there. And I didn't know there was a place called Bohemian Grove. I didn't write Bohemian Grove in the book because I didn't know what it was. I just took his diary. Anyway, and it clearly is where he was taken. And uh, he was taken out there for a ceremony in which, which they committed some pretty horrible things on another boy. They had three boys, and they filmed it, and I just took his words and the names he wrote there, and they're right in the book. And by the way, just, just to answer your next question, yes, I put names in the books, dates, and everything I could just as they were. Why? Because I figured it blow it out all straight. And I said when, when a number of threatening calls came after the first edition came out, they said, well, this is the most libelous, slanderous thing we've ever heard. And I said, fine, I think I've done enough to prove it, and I'm satisfied if if somebody feels that way, if I said these, somebody said these things about me, I'd sue them for libel and slander. Well, there was one libel slander lawsuit as a result of the book, but that was one I filed against some group called Great Atlantic Telecast Company, some TV network on the East Coast, when they had uh, one of the characters of the book, who also happened to be running for president at the time, uh, go around saying, oh, don't believe this, don't believe this, this is a lie, and they supported him, and I said, so I sued him. Well, ended up they ended up paying me off and backing down and reaching a settlement. I, I said to you, I said, well, it sure is a new new world order, I think, or something like that. And then I realized it was uh, using a worn-out phrase that I guess uh, some people are really trying to implement. But anyway, yeah, I have right here the diaries. You want me to read a little, okay? Now, understand that I didn't know that the thing was Bohemian Grove back then, nor did the kid when he was writing it. All he knew was he was taken to this place. Let me just read it. It'll take... Three minutes. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. I went in January. Now, this is Benassi, a kid named Paul Benassi writing this, and this is directly word for word from his, his uh, diary. I went in January of 84 on every trip. I was paid by men, King knew for set. In the summer of 84, sometime, I went to Dallas, Texas, and had sex with several men, King knew in a hotel. I flew on YNR Airlines. By the way, that's a private airline or just private charter deal. And Cam Airlines, another... Private charter deal, normally for King. I never had much personally to do with King, only went where he told me to go. In or on July 26th, I went to Sacramento, California. King flew me out on a private plane from Epley Airfield in Omaha to Denver, where we picked up Nicholas, a boy who was about 12 or 13. Then we flew to Vegas, to a desert strip, and drove into Las Vegas into some ranch and got something. Then flew on to Sacramento. We were picked up by a white limo and taken to a hotel. I don't remember the name of it. We, meaning Nicholas and I, were driven to an area that had big, big trees. It took about an hour to get there. There was a cage with a boy in it who was not wearing anything. Nicholas and I were given these Tarzan things to put around us and, and stuff like that. They told me to, I won't use the word, uh, blank the boy and stuff. In other words, have sex with him. At first I said no, and they held a gun to my uh, genitals, I'll use the word, and said, do it or else lose them or something like that. I began doing it to the boy and stuff. And Nicholas had anal sex and stuff with him. We were told to blank him and stuff and beat on him. I didn't try to hurt him. We were told to put our blanks in his mouth and stuff and sit on the boy's blank and stuff, and they filmed it. We did this stuff to the boy for about 30 minutes or an hour when a man came in and kicked us and stuff in the genitals, uh, and picked us up and threw us. He grabbed the boy and started blanking him and stuff. The man was about, I'm not sure how to say it. the man was about so many inches long, and the boy screamed and stuff, and the man was forcing his blank into the boy all the way. The boy was bleeding from his 
uh, wrecked him, and the men tossed me and him and stuff and put the boy right next to me and grabbed the gun and blew the boy's head off. The boy's blood was all over me, and I started yelling and crying. The men grabbed Nicholas and I and forced us to lie down. They put the boy on top of Nicholas, who was crying, and they were putting Nicholas' hands on the boy's blank. They put the boy on top of me and did the same thing. They then forced me to blank the dead boy. It's pretty crude. They put a gun to our heads to make us do it. His blood was all over us. They made us kiss the boy's lips and do Anyway, do other things. Then they made me do something I don't even want to even write, so I won't. After that, the men grabbed Nicholas and drug him off, screaming they put me up against a tree and put a gun to my head but fired into the air. I heard another shot from somewhere and then saw the man who killed the boy drag him like a toy. Everything, including when the men put the boy in a trunk, was filmed. The men took me with them, and we went up in a plane. I saw the bag the boy was in. We went over a very thick brush area with a clearing in it. Over the clearing, they dropped the boy. One said the men with the hoods would take care of the body for them. I didn't see Nicholas until that night at the hotel. He and I hugged and held each other for a long while. About two hours later, the men or Larry King came in and told us to go take a shower since we had only been hosed off at some guy's house. We took a shower together and then were told to put on the tires and things. After we were cleaned up and dressed in these things, we were told to put on short socks and a shirt and shoes and driven to a house where the men were at with some others. They had the film and they played it. As the men watched, they passed Nicholas and I around as if we were toys. And So, that's that. I... Really don't need to comment at all about that. I am sorry for having to expose you to this, but I felt like it was very important and a very big deal and something that you don't really ever hear about, that this stuff is for horror movies and that's it. When you do have firsthand accounts of this stuff occurring at places where we have the most well-known public officials and businessmen attend on a yearly basis, it's pretty crazy. Now, is it guaranteed to all be true? No, and I don't know. Like I said before, I'm presenting you with the information. This is something I came across. I am well aware of who is doing the interview, and that is coming from an alternative source that, especially in recent times, has been discredited on some specific issues. However, that does not discredit DeCamp or his story or anything else. So that's it. That wraps up our episodes on corruption and conspiracy that wraps up today's update and conclusion. So please come back next time as we get into agorism. That one should be really fun. It's some practical information. It's information that you can actually apply that is important to all of our daily lives and that will give you basically some steps and some actions that you can actually implement yourself. So come back for that. Until then, please rate and review the podcast if you have not done so already. That is greatly appreciated. We have gotten some more reviews and some more ratings, and that really helps. I've gotten some good feedback from some people, especially um, on Reddit, and some people have sent me some messages on things that they have enjoyed about the show, their opinions on the show, things like that. And that's really helpful for me because it helps me to know what I need to work on as well as what I should focus on and what people do enjoy and what aspects I should highlight and things like that. So I can make sure I present what you want to hear. So if you have not done that, please do so, whether that be through email or if you want to send a little message on Twitter or through the website, write a review or whatever the case may be, get the information to me, give me some feedback and I can better serve you and present you with what you want. 
because that's the goal. That's the whole reason I am doing this podcast is to get information out there to you, the listener. This is information that I have felt has been very important. I have taken the time to research on my own and research myself and educate myself on. And so I believe that it is important for you as well and to be public information. But if there are specific aspects that you really do like and want to hear more of or that you really don't or things that have not gone as well, whatever the case may be, give me the information. I will get back to you and I will try to incorporate that feedback into future episodes. So we have the website that you can go to and look at the outline for the rest of season one and what's upcoming, what that order is. You can look at the resources that I use for information, podcasts, books, things like that. There is also a link to the Twitter account where I post a lot of memes mainly that are more anti-government in nature is usually the case. And thank you for those that have started to follow on Twitter. I see new people every week. And so thank you for following. I'm not sure how many of those come through connections on Twitter and how many are you listeners that decide to follow just from being a listener. But whatever the case, thank you for those that have. Thank you for those that have emailed me and given me feedback. That is especially helpful. That is one of the most helpful things that you can do for this podcast is send me feedback. Give me your opinions extremely helpful for what I produce and what I put out there, what I research, what I cover, all this kind of stuff, especially as I'm wrapping up my plans for season one and getting into season two, I will need a lot of feedback on different aspects of that. And I'll ask for more details later on in the season. We still have many months to go before season one is over. So plenty of time for that. But your feedback is extremely important. The other way you can support if you want to is to support financially on Patreon. I have a Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash our foundations. And again, the link for that is in the show notes as well. And you can give online. There is a set tier that if you want to follow that structure, you could give monthly and it's set for $4 a month. And with that, you get some extra content, some bonus episodes, some extra input into the podcast and that kind of stuff. So it's basically a dollar a week or a dollar an episode. Plus you get bonus episodes. So I guess slightly less than that. But if you want to support that way, you can. I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to give a dollar a week and that's all, then wonderful. That would be also greatly appreciated. If you just want to give a one-time donation because you have really enjoyed something about this podcast or you want to support it in some way, then thank you very much. That would be very helpful and very useful. And it all goes to producing this podcast. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support of all kinds. I am out of here. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.